Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. A few weeks ago, I received an email from my guest today, Mary Fitzgerald. She was in Libya at the time and recommended that we catch up. Lots going on, she wrote. As you will see, that was, of course, an understatement. The last time that Mary Fitzgerald and I spoke was in April. This was just after a renegade general named Khalifa Hiftar launched an attack on the internationally recognized and UN-backed government in Tripoli. That assault abruptly ended a UN-brokered peace process that seemed at the time to be on the brink of success. In the ensuing months, the sides have been lodged into a more or less stalemate, with fighting mostly confined to neighborhoods on the outskirts of Tripoli. But recently, Haftar's backers have stepped up their support. This includes Russia, which has deployed troops and equipment to Haftar this fall. Meanwhile, Turkey is raising the possibility that it will send troops to defend Tripoli from Haftar's attack. Mary Fitzgerald is a researcher specializing in Libya, and as she explains, this moment in Libya is extremely perilous. Outside forces, including Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, are fueling this conflict, while key diplomatic players in Europe and the United States are sending some profoundly mixed signals. So, at the end of 2019, the crisis in Libya could very well descend into a crushing proxy war and civil war of profound humanitarian and international consequence. Libya, in other words, right now is poised to be the major international crisis of 2020. I think you will find this conversation very explanatory and useful. Interestingly, last time I had Mary Fitzgerald on the show, I got an email from a listener who told me that she listened to that episode three times in a row because she found it so useful. And a note before we start from Northwestern University's online master's program in global health, you can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sbs.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Mary Fitzgerald. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
Well, Tripoli is a city that is now in its ninth month of of war, um, a war that is fought mostly on its um, hinterland and mostly from the skies. Um, as Ghassan Salame, the UN special envoy to, to Libya, said last week, this is actually a war with few warriors. It's a war fought mostly from the skies. So in the city center, um, you hear constant booms, but the war in many respects feels quite far away um, because it hasn't entered um, the city center um, as of now. There have been um, airstrikes on Matiga Airport, which is the only operating airport in, in Tripoli um, over, over the past months that caused the airport to shut for, for several weeks. It's, it's just opened, actually, again, reopened this week. But I would say in terms of the general mood amongst the population, the people I spoke to, there was very much a sense of a population that is caught uh, between uh, fraught and fatalistic here. Fraught because um, they've endured nine months of um, not just a war on the outskirts of their city, but also the uncertainty of where this war is going to go next and whether this war will come into the uh, city center. Fatalistic because there's a sense of very much uh, for many people people I spoke to, a sense of plague on both your houses when it comes to both uh, Haftar, um, who started this war with his offensive on the UN-recognized government in, in April 4th. But there's also no love lost for that UN-recognized uh, government. The people... Um, very much see as as having failed. Um, so there is much trepidation in Tripoli um, in terms of what may uh, come next. The question of how far Haftar's external backers, who are key to this war, are prepared uh, to to back him to see if he can pull this off. So last time we spoke uh, was in April, not long after Khalifa Haftar launched this uh, offensive. And in those ensuing months, nine months, uh, there seems to have been, as you just described, a somewhat of, of a more or less stalemate uh, in which there's battles, as you said, over the outskirts of Tripoli. But as you just said, not um, any fighting in Tripoli city center yet. Um, before we sort of discuss the current state of play, could you just go back and, and briefly remind listeners how we got to this point and how Khalifa Haftar became a such a key player in this story? Well, I think it's important to first go back to April 4th this year and the fact that Haftar um, launched an offensive to capture Tripoli from the UN-recognized government on the very same day that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was in Tripoli um, to give support to a national conference that was due to take place a week later um, that was midwifed, if you like, by the UN. There was a sense, and this is what I was told constantly in Tripoli um, during my recent visit, there was a sense that progress was being made albeit slow progress, um, and progress that Haftar, with this offensive, essentially torpedoed. So, But if we rewind be, beyond that and back to 2014, um, which is the year that Haftar, despite the role that he played in 2011, the uprising against Gaddafi in 2011, um, ironic given that uh, the twists and turns of Haftar's career in 1969, he was one of the military officers along with Gaddafi 
that carried out the coup that essentially brought Gaddafi to power. Um, he later fell out with Gaddafi and joined the Libyan opposition. But in 2014, Haftar burst on the scene again in February that year. I was living in Tripoli at the time, and I remember the day very well because reports started coming in um, on what were eventually to be very sympathetic uh, media channels, Arab media channels for Haftar, that a military coup was underway in, in Tripoli. Al Arabiya in particular was, was reporting this. And this was all based on a video Haftar had released in full military dress, um, basically saying that he was going to suspend the then um, elected government in, in Tripoli. He was widely ridiculed. Um, Libyans joked that it was the Valentine's Day coup that wasn't because he did it on February 14th. Haftar um, essentially uh, disappeared only to pitch up in May of that year um, launching what he described as Operation Karama, or Dignity in Arabic, an operation he said was um, solely aimed at rooting out extremist groups in Benghazi and eastern Libya. I interviewed him within weeks of um, his launching of that particular operation. And one thing that really struck me at that time and has struck me um, several times since is he grew very testy um, in our conversation when I told him I had been struck by the number of Libyans I met who, while they supported the idea of the operation he had just launched, they had a lot of questions about him, his ultimate aims and uh, personal ambitions. He didn't like that. Um, and he was very much keen to try and portray himself as somebody who was selfless and was only doing this for, for the good of the country. But the fact is that many of those who rose up against Haftar during that year and in the years uh, that followed were people who had known Haftar for quite some time and who were very suspicious of his ultimate ambitions. And it was fear of those ambitions, fear that Haftar ultimately wanted to impose himself as military ruler in Libya that has driven the war in Libya since 2014. And, and it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, that it, in those initial operations in which he wrested control of parts of Libya from groups that uh, may or may not have been somewhat affiliated with al-Qaeda, that he received support from uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. Yes, indeed. And, and chief amongst those backers were the UAE and, and Egypt. In fact, this week, a UN panel of experts report on Libya outlined the very blatant um, violations of the arms embargo in Libya um, that we've seen since uh, this latest war started in April. And the panel um, named in particular uh, the UAE and Jordan, actually, uh, which was quite interesting. Jordan um, being uh, fingered for the first time um, for training Haftar's forces, but also um, arming him. Uh, Jordan has been training Haftar's forces for several years now, but it's the first time that any kind of scrutiny is applied on them. But Haftar's key backers have been the UAE and Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia to a degree as well, but definitely his biggest champions have been um, the UAE and, uh, and Egypt. With France, also importantly from a European perspective, France has helped him militarily and has also greatly assisted him diplomatically. And when we spoke in in April, sort of not long after that dramatic moment in which uh, they 
uh, Antonio Guterres was in Tripoli on the precipice of this negotiating this this peace deal in which uh, Haftar subsequently you know launched an attack totally torpedoing that peace process when we spoke uh you know, the United States was sending very conflicting signals over whether or not it was supporting Haftar or the UN-backed government. Um, if I recall at the time, uh, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, you know, issued some public statement in support of the government of, of National Accord, the, the Tripoli, the UN-backed government, when uh, Donald Trump, I think it was like a, in a Twitter message maybe, or no, it was a readout of a was telephone call, right? That the White House released seemed to praise Haftar for fighting terrorism. So they seem to be kind of playing both sides of, of, of the coin. Right, exactly. And, and there was a lot of confusion over what precisely U.S. policy was after the, the details of that phone call between uh, Trump and Hafter were made public. And that confusion um, lasted for some time. Um, it's, it's, it's well known that there are people um, in the administration who are sympathetic uh, to, to Hafter. Um, John Bolton, before his departure, was known to be sympathetic to, to Hafter. Um, but what's interesting in, in, in recent months is the fact that an increased Russian presence on the ground um, in support of Haftar in the form of um, Russian mercenaries um, in the battle for Tripoli, um, also allegedly Russian um, military personnel, um, according to, to some reports. This has um, uh, basically created a new interest um, in D.C. In, in terms of what's happening in Libya. So we see uh, several statements in recent weeks expressing concern about this increased presence of Russians on the ground and what that may ultimately mean uh, for the, 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 the evolution of this war and the impact on uh, civilians. Uh, just this week, uh, Mike Pompeo said that um, the U.S. wants to to work with the Russians um, in Libya to to get Libyans to the negotiating table. Um, at the same time, as as warning about violations of of the um, arms embargo. So people would say it's still somewhat mixed messages. Uh, but what we do know is that this Russian role is um, one of the most interesting components of the war as it's currently playing out. Um, because people certainly um, on the ground in, in Libya, there are some on the anti-Haftar side who believe that this has actually made um, quite a critical difference um, in terms of how this war is, is faring. Um, they believe that the, um, the presence of the Russians on the ground has helped tilt dynamics um, on the front line, though it's essentially still stalemated. Um, in, in Haftar's benefit. And, and this has also had an impact on morale of those anti-Haftar forces as well. So that's interesting. That that jives with the analysis I just read before speaking with you, which is you know, basically that when these Russians started arriving sometime this fall, um, they have helped to tilt the sort of balance of power on the ground, um, you know, and, and may be uh, effectively able to overcome what is essentially that stalemate that you described in the sort of outskirts of, of Tripoli. Um, but in the midst of all this, uh, just a few days before we're speaking, enters Turkey. Can you describe what Erdogan said and why that is significant? Well, Turkey has been key in, in this current war uh, for a number of months now. Um, when the war started and it was 
clear that Hafter's backers uh, were determined to to assist him in, in terms of pulling this off. Uh, Turkey very much weighed in on the side of the government of national accord, that is the UN-recognized government. And not only did it weigh in in terms of uh, military assistance, again, uh, flouting the arms embargo, but also Erdogan um, was notably uh, belligerent in a series of, of statements uh, regarding what was happening in Libya, um, accusing Haftar of wanting to impose himself as military ruler, etc. When um, Turkey moved into uh, northern Syria, there was um, a fear amongst the anti-Haftar Libyans that this basically would take Turkish attention away from what was happening in Libya and possibly would impact on the level of military assistance Turkey was giving the anti-Haftar forces. And that concern was continuing until um, just the last couple of weeks where we saw an uptick again in, in terms of Turkish engagement with, with Libya and specifically um, an agreement that Turkey made with uh, the GNA um, the details of which still remain quite uh, sketchy, and, and the EU in particular has been insisting it wants to see uh, the full details of, of this agreement. But it has uh, managed to antagonize uh, Greece because of an element in the agreement that refers to the continental uh, shelf in the Mediterranean and, uh, and Greek territorial uh. claims. Um, just in recent days, Erdogan has given interviews to Turkish media where he has claimed that if the GNA, the UN-recognized government, uh, asks Turkey to send forces uh, to Libya to push back Haftar, that he would be prepared to do that. And that is something he's actually repeated a number of times this week, which all points towards a ratcheting up of um, the various external meddlers in, in the Libyan conflict. Uh, just um, earlier this evening, Haftar gave an interview on an Arab TV channel um, claiming that um, his uh, victory, as he put it, was imminent and it was, he said that they would be inevitably uh, victorious. Of course, this is, you know, the umpteenth time Haftar has declared uh, such a scenario over the last uh, nine months. But we are seeing a ratcheting up of um, the uh, rhetoric and also actions from the various foreign meddlers involved in the Libyan conflict to a degree that um, so many Libyans, and many of those I spoke to in, in Tripoli, feel that the conflict is no longer in uh, Libyan hands. I was struck by um, the, Libyan, uh, the Libyans I met, their tendency to retreat into metaphor when talking about uh, the current war, uh, a favorite metaphor and no surprise given the Libyan love for football was um, basically say, Libyans saying that they feel that they are spectators at a football match watching two teams playing and some of the coaches and, and players may not be Libyan. Um, so it, it shows that they feel that this is a war that really is not in their hands to either um, resolve um, or to continue. And uh, of course, that has all kinds of uh, interesting consequences. Well, from the beginning, there were some, for, from the beginning, there were Libyans' anti-war voices who warned, um, who criticized Haftar's offensive at, at its early stages, who warned that every war has unintended consequences. And given the range of foreign players involved in the, in the Libyan conflict, that this could be a war that could spin off or spiral off in all kinds of negative directions. And this is a, this, these are scenarios we see, seem to be seeing playing out now. Well, well, I mean, here we are speaking at the end of 2019, and you are um, 
describing a potential scenario, you know, in which Turkish troops will be fighting Russian troops in Libya, in, in Tripoli, in Libya. I mean, this is like a, in, in which Libya is a proxy, the venue for a proxy war between Turkey and Russia. This is crazy. Well, and this is why Libyans are extremely worried about how this uh, this may play out. Libyans who have grown extremely cynical at the mantra uh, that they've heard from various international players um, over the last nine months, indeed over the last couple of years during the very difficult UN dialogue process, that there is no military um, solution to um, to the Libyan conflict. Indeed, um, Mike Pompeo uh, said so much uh, just in a statement about an hour ago. But this this mantra of no military solution to, to Libya's uh, ills um, has been repeated um, uh, constantly by those who continue to back Haftar militarily, um, backing him, empowering him, uh, creating the situation that we saw happen in, in April. So the question is, as it was in, uh, in April when Haftar started this war, now nine months later, the question is how far um, the backers of the man who started this current war are prepared to go um, to have him realize his objectives. And, and, you know, if the answer to that is, in fact, very far and sacking of Tripoli, uh, which doesn't seem out of the realm of, of you know, possibility based on what you're saying, what what does that mean for, you know, for, for Europe, for international security more broadly? Well, what's been striking in terms of international conversations of, of the, the current impasse and, and indeed since the war was started in April is the lack of any real conversation on the day after, if you like. Um, so if Haftar was to um, prevail and reach his objectives, what would Tripoli look like and what would Libya look like in that particular scenario? One um, prospect that many um, consider inevitable is of an insurgency in Libya, an insurgency that would take several, an anti-Haftar insurgency that would take several different forms. Indeed, also Haftar has his own challenges within his own camp. Um, his what he calls his army is essentially a collection of various armed groups from uniformed military officers, but also a range of militias from tribal militias to hardline Salafist militias. He's also relied on Chadian and Sudanese uh, mercenaries. So his army, as he calls it, is actually a coalition of many different interests. It's not um, a particularly cohesive coalition. So there are all kinds of questions as to what may happen to that coalition if they actually achieve their objectives. Would they then kind of fall apart in terms of infighting? Um, we've seen some uh, hints of that already. And then there is the question of... Um, of basically uh, what what uh, Haftar would do, uh, the kind of country, the kind of vision he has for, for ruling a country. If we look at what he's done in eastern Libya, and he has managed to control, although I would always caution that the word control is quite relative in the Libyan context, um, eastern Libya. Um, but he has done that through um, a climate of repression and uh, fear. Uh, one particular episode in this war that has chilled a great many in Libya is um, the abduction in July of a female 
parliamentarian, Siham Sergewa, um, who was taken from her home by armed men who shot her husband um, uh, after she criticized Haftar's war on Tripoli um, in a TV interview. Uh, Mrs. Sergewa has not been seen since, and there are real fears um, as to her whereabouts, but also her well-being. Um, so that episode has been held up as an example of what happens in Haftar-controlled territory when you dare criticize the man and, and what he's been doing. So there are those who fear that that maybe um, a scenario for other parts of the country he aims to control. So, I mean, if, tri if Tripoli falls to, to Haftar, you know, it's already a significant departure point for migrants heading to Europe. Uh, but these are, are not exclusively Libyan migrants. Rather, they're, you know, migrants from across Africa and sub-Saharan Africa who, you know, just kind of see Libya as a departure point to Europe to, to seek refuge. I have to imagine, though, that we're going to see another massive refugee crisis. Um, and I wonder if Europe is prepared for that that sort of you know, almost like a Syria-level-esque of, of refugee flows? Well, there are uh, two uh, main concerns that Europe has had related uh, to Libya. One is um, relating to migration flows. The other is related to security threats, particularly in the form of uh, so-called Islamic State. On the migration um, issue, uh, the Europeans have been dealing with that UN-recognized um, government that, that Haftar is trying to um, unseat. Indeed, during the war in the summer, um, a detention center um, housing uh, migrants was, was hit in airstrikes, um, killing scores um, of migrants who had um, been held there. So there is a concern that um, should... Uh, Tripoli fall, and it's a, a great caveat there in terms of the forces that are um, are determined to prevent uh, Haftar from taking Tripoli. Their morale may be flagging, but they're still determined to to see this uh, battle out. So there are a lot of caveats there in terms of that scenario actually um, occurring. But there are concerns about how um, the migration issue may play out. Um, no matter what happens in, in the next uh, months. Um, that is a concern of the Europeans. The other concern is uh, the security threat. And what we have seen, despite Haftar's claims that he is the, the key to um, security in Libya, what we have seen happen over the last nine months is, again, a space opens. When Libyans are fighting Libyans, a space opens for so-called Islamic State to, to exploit. We've seen that repeatedly since uh, 2014. And that is a great fear here as well, that basically Libyans fighting each other means that Libyans are not actually looking out for um, so-called Islamic State uh, trying to exploit the space that they have left between. So as we're speaking now, um, you know, the potential for escalation seems you know, very, very real and perhaps, you know, very forthcoming in, in, in the near future, particularly if, you know, Turkey and Erdogan makes good on its threats to deploy Turkish soldiers to head off that Russian-backed offensive. Um, so that, that scenario seems plausible, but are there perhaps pathways uh, in which both sides can take to... Um, suggest a more peaceful outcome to the solution? Like what, what are the prospects for a more negotiated solution to 
this crisis right now? You know, and what's the potential that these kind of nightmare scenarios of you know Libya imploding or perhaps exploding even further uh, might be avoided? Well, you know, we're hearing a lot of bluster from um, the the various players, whether it's Hafter today claiming that uh, victory is inevitable and coming soon, as he has so many times over the last eight months, or nine months rather, or whether it's um, Erdogan threatening to, to send ground forces. So there's a lot of bluster, um, definitely an uptick in belligerent rhetoric, while on the ground um, things have not really um, tipped in any um, uh, dramatic way um, in in either direction. In the meantime, diplomatically, there have been efforts um, by the UN mission to Libya and other internationals to to push for what has become known as the Berlin process. So another um, dialogue process um, that would lead to a, a meeting in, in Berlin at some point early next year, which would focus specifically, um, not, not predominantly, but very much on the, um, the arms embargo and the need um, for, for actors to respect the arms embargo, but also uh, the need for violators of that arms embargo to, to face repercussions they haven't uh, at all um, up to now, and that is since 2011. Um, so there are those who still cling to um, the idea that um, some kind of um, diplomatic diplomatic path is is possible. Um, but the UN envoy Hassan Salame, um, he spoke at a public event in in Rome last week and uh, was was notably downbeat. You can see he's frustrated um, with the, the with the the lack of possibility right now um, diplomatically. The fact that no one. Um, seems willing to um, to to basically uh, call this war off in terms of the actual actors on the ground, but also internationally, no one seems willing to clearly um, tell Haftar in particular um, that he needs to 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 stop this war. Um, so I, there's a lot of frustration um, diplomatically, a lot, and then of course a lot of questions amongst Libyans as to whether. This situation um, will be resolved by um, by uh, by the by the gun, or in, in this particular um, case, uh, by by airstrikes, or whether um, a diplomatic path is is still possible. Uh, well, Mary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mary Fitzgerald. That was very helpful. I'm so glad she reached out to me. This is now on my radar as one of the key crises to watch in 2020. I suspect it's on your radar as well. And one last note, uh, if you are a listener and you're with an organization that seeks to reach the Global Dispatches podcast listening audience with an ad, uh, reach out to me. We have a couple of slots open in the next uh, couple of months, and I'd be happy to fill them by you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, and I can tell you more. I will right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.